Hi, I'm Sharon Jones, Head of Digital Innovation at the King's Fund, and I'm thrilled to be speaking to our very own Simon Newitt, Senior Consultant here at the Fund, about collaboration and how working with different viewpoints and ideas can create better outcomes. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me on your uh, podcast. Oh, you're welcome. So you work with so many different people in your line of work. Can you talk a little bit about that and how would you even define collaboration, what it is and what it isn't? Sure. So, um, so yeah, you're right. My work takes me right across the health and care system into some of the kind of quite rarefied spaces like executive boards, clinical leadership structures, but also into the voluntary community sector, occasionally into local government. It's a really privileged position, actually, to be able to kind of float across the system, poke your nose in in different spaces and get a sense for what's going on and how people are thinking and feeling. So it's a very... Um, yeah, it feels like a real, I say, a real privilege sometimes to to be able to work in that way. And I guess in relation to collaboration, it's a it's a trendy word. It's something that lots of uh, the organisations and leaders that I get to work with say that they really desperately want very badly. Yeah. Um, it's also a word I think we chuck about a bit without much giving it much thought. Uh, I think often it it becomes a byword for cooperation, which I think yeah. is something a little bit bit more technical and sort of perfunctory and therefore I, I don't see to be quite honest a massive amount of genuine collaboration in the day job when I go about the system so for me collaboration is a really it's a creative act it's a generative act between people who've come together to get something done that otherwise wouldn't get done or it wouldn't exist in the same way if individual kind of actors or agencies try to do it on their own yeah. so fundamentally it's a really creative energy and a creative force and I think that's why you don't see it very often <laughs> because there's a great deal in the health and care system that mitigates against it not least its opposite competition which yeah. as a force is still really pretty potent yeah. and especially for example now when resources are scarce that's also something that will drive competition rather than collaboration it might be that uh, as a as a leader, I could see the need for collaboration in, in circumstances like these where um, there's a scarcity of resources. But more more often than not, what I see in, in my work is that scarcity drives competition right. and sort of turf turf wars rather than collaboration. Yeah. And often in quite a subtle way. So I so I think um, collaboration is a really precious creative energy in the system, um, and uh, there's not there's not an awful lot of it about. And you've touched on there about creativity, and that's a whole other topic that I'll be delving into later. Do you think that sometimes people think, well, I'm not creative, and it's only for a certain type of person, a certain type of mindset, and that then puts people off, thinking that they can contribute in a valuable way? Yeah, I definitely think that. There's a couple of ways that happens. One one is that we often get kind of drilled into us from a very young age that we're, we're either a creative type or not, or an academic type. And so there's this kind of false, mm. false dichotomy set up. But the other way it happens, I reckon, Sharon, is that the, the world of work is, a, is a, especially in health and care, but in all kinds of corporate spaces, is a profoundly uncreative space. Mm. I think just about the way... Uh, that people show up for work, the way they dress, the way we arrange ourselves in buildings, sitting around tables that we would never have in our own home because they're so sort of stale <laughs> and, uh, um, and ugly. You know, I, I, in sort of 25 years working uh, across the health and care system, 
I don't think I've ever been in a room that that made me feel creative, where the, where the environment or the conditions were uh, offered up in a way that made me feel like, uh, oh, this is exciting. Let's let's do something playful. Let's experiment with some stuff. Those we don't really also create the conditions in which people can feel like they have permission to be creative. So, but I think you're right. I think that that therefore puts a lot of people off. Personally, I really honestly believe the capacity for creativity is kind of what makes humans special. Yeah. And it's and it's in all of us. And and therefore given what we've said about kind of the world of work and the way the health and care systems are arranged, you have to be intentional about it. It doesn't just happen. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to really create the conditions where, where people can, can play and experiment and, and tap into that creative side of their brain. You've touched on the different areas of uh, work in terms of the system and, you know, probably commercial areas and the um, voluntary sector. Are there any common themes that you have found around collaboration and what are the common challenges that you've also found? Well, I'll start with the challenges because in some ways they're the themes and and that's not to be unnecessarily problem-centred about it, but you you definitely notice the the challenges more more often than not. And I've I've, I've, I've referenced one in terms of competition as a dynamic, so that's definitely a challenge. And often competition is not even acknowledged. So it's sort of sitting there doing the work of undermining collaboration quite quietly. But there's there's a couple of other things, I think, which are part of the challenge. One is there is a really dominant mindset in organisations that they are somehow machine-like, that they can be led, controlled, and that change within them can be done as though they were machine-like entities so if if i pull this lever that will happen you hear like mechanized language everywhere in organizations it's the language of dashboards and uh, indicators and outputs and quantitative stuff it's a language which is a long long way away from a kind of more creative artistic Mm. worldview which is more emergent we need much less to control and plan for things so i think there's a mindset issue and a cultural, yeah. therefore, issue in in uh, most organisations, which mitigates against collaboration as a uh, an activity and as an effort. There's ways around that. So where where I've seen collaboration flourish, for want of a better word, is where the individuals or organisations involved have spent time privileging their relationships to one another. So they've been much less focused on the project that they're collaborating on yeah. or or the the thing and they spend a really good amount of time up front building trust yeah. between each other i think that's because i think collaboration is a creative energy in the system it doesn't it can't exist without that trust being in place in the relationship of the people who are collaborating where 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 i've seen it work it's because people have invested in the relationships at the heart of the collaboration yeah before they've before getting to what it is that they're collaborating on and they've really attended to that the trust is key and i've heard that already Mm -hmm. from a, a previous guest who talked about when you want to you know try to move an organization forward you need to gain trust beforehand before you implement any action yes So I know you're always keen to try new things when it comes to working in teams. Can you talk about some of those techniques that you use and how could they be applied to, you know, any person in the organisation or any project? 
Okay, yeah, so some of the stuff that, um, that I found helpful and that I try to practice in my own work, I suppose, um, one of them is a technique called reframing. So it, that's just a way of engaging with your own assumptions, really, about the way you're looking at work and, and, and the world around you and changing it, making a choice to change it. Mm. So a good example of that would be often what you what you come across in, in the, in the care, health and care system is the idea that uh, patients and communities are kind of passive consumers of services. Mm. And therefore, that sets up a whole set of beliefs and actions about, well, then my job in running this service is about rationing scarce resources as best as possible in order to meet their needs. Yeah. But if you reframe that and you ask yourself, well, actually, what is a resource? Beyond beyond not having enough time and money, how else might we think about resources or about impact or about quality? You can invite yourself to kind of um, lean into your own assumptions and think differently about what might be possible. So with a resource, for example, you may not have enough money or you may not have enough time to do the piece of collaboration you want to do, but you might look, for example, at patients instead of being sort of passive consumers yeah. as being resources, as being creators of health. And in my own work in leadership and OD, what I've tried to do increasingly is go to our punters, so mm-hmm. the staff across the health and care system, and instead of just seeing them as individuals who are going to come and buy and consume learning and development from the King's Fund, I've tried to say, what if we collaborated with them to, to design and make something completely fresh that was really kind of bespoke to their needs and what they say they want and uh, emerges from a series of conversations and, and collaborative effort between us. So then the punter becomes a resource and not just a consumer. Yeah. And that's a, that's a just one way you can um, you can reframe things in order to kind of open up new possibilities for uh, for action. You'll know because I've said to you in the past, Sharon, that I'm I, I, I'm a really huge fan of human centered design. I try yeah. to use it in my work all the time and again that's another kind of methodology if you're if you're keen on it you stick it into google and look on the design council website there's some really helpful resources there it's a way of starting with the the lived experience and needs of the end user suspending your own assumptions about what you think is right and helpful and and working through a process of exploration in order to arrive at something new and i think that's a collaborative yeah that's a collaborative energy that's a collaborative process it's one where you attend to power. So I bring, I might bring some of my expertise, for example, to that conversation, mm-hmm. but I don't. I, it doesn't trump the lived experience or the learned experience of of the people I'm collaborating with. So you kind of, in a framework like that, you can you can collaborate in a quite structured way, in a way which is is really creative and very generative as a as a process. It certainly feels different yeah. to me going away with my notebook and designing a a learning and development program on my own based on what I've learned over 25 years or whatever that's that's a very isolated process yeah, yeah. and I know which one will end up with a better program at the end of it absolutely and it sounds a bit like there there's a bit of like co-production going on so you're working with the audience you're working with the with the intended you know end user shall we say to help bring out the best in the thing that you're making and it also sounds a bit like you're democratizing that knowledge you know, it's not, like you say, a position of power. You're sort of utilising everybody in the room. Everybody's bringing value and everybody's got a, a part of that journey and that narrative to produce the end result. Yeah, lovely. That's a really lovely way of putting it. I suppose the other thing I'd add, there's a certain kind of conversation which really helps collaboration. 
and again it's a quite a rare kind of conversation in organizational life and it's kind of it's like the kind of lingo for it is a generative dialogue but what that means is that it's a conversation which has that kind of creative spark in it because what what people are in that conversation are doing is they're taking up different positions and roles in the conversation mm -hmm. in order to create something new and to move the conversation on often what you get in organizational life for all the cultural reasons we just talked about earlier yeah is conversation becomes an instrument for just getting stuff done yeah it's a it's a blunt tool it's not a creative force it's about rush, rattling through agendas or uh you know ticking off strategies or whatever but it's not necessarily the kind of really uh, profoundly creative energizing thing it can be and again you so you have to work quite hard yeah to, to you have to be intentional about it and create that kind of um create conditions for that kind of conversation to exist and how do you think you can be intentional about it if you say you're in a, a team where that's not your normal kind of day-to-day -day thinking and you might just you know be used to doing using spreadsheets or using like you say a dashboard how do you think you can tease that out in teams or in individuals to help aid that new way of working well i think it starts by acknowledging that that's the way we do things mm. Because until you notice it, there's this great quote, which I like by a writer, G.K. Chesterton, says the things we see every day are the things we no longer see at all. Mm. And so until you acknowledge that the way we work is is in this way and we want to work differently or we want to innovate or create something new, um, you can't really step into that space or be intentional about it. So it starts with noticing. Yeah. And then I think I said earlier that where I've seen it work, it's because there has uh, been an effort to build trust in the relationships of the people who are collaborating. Yeah. So then I think a wise thing to do in your in your team or group is to spend some time building that trust, contracting with each other about what you need from one another in order to 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 flourish in this space, to be creative. What are some of the conditions that you can create together? All of that kind of relational work will help build the foundation for a more collaborative, creative kind of conversation and piece of work. You've touched on innovation there. When it comes to innovation, how do you think cross-fund working can help aid new thinking? I think one of the, the great things, but also maybe some of the great untapped potential in the King's Fund, is the value and creativity that could be leveraged in the differences between different bits of the organisation. So from the bit I'm in, leadership and OD, policy, marketing, comms, events, across those different bits of the organisation and the business are lots of different experiences, insights, perspectives that unless they are brought together in a way that um, they can bounce off one another and create something interesting and new, they will stay and sit in their silo doing what we always do. Yeah. And that's not... A, just a judgment or a comment on the king's fund it would be true it's true of any organization part of the value of uh, that kind of cross-fund working is in leveraging the inherent diversity in the organization and in the system and it's that diversity and difference of perspective which is the kind of fuel for something new to emerge for collaboration to kind of create something interesting and fresh sounds great and many organizations have adopted hybrid working as a result of the pandemic what impact do you think that has on collaboration? Is it genuinely better in person or are there ways of using digital to produce similar results? Uh, so my answer is going to be an annoying one. It depends. So, uh, <laughs> and it depends on, it depends on the team. It depends mm -hmm. on their, their ways of working, the culture that they've built up and how they like to get stuff done. Uh, so I don't think it, 
listen, if you're a team where you've got quite established ways of working that are about doing stuff face to face and in the room together, uh, and then the last two years, you know, the workplace has been decentered. People have had to get get used to working online, as you said. That can feel threatening. It can feel like a challenge. It can feel like um, there's lots in the way to the yeah. relationships and to the, the potential for collaboration, including the tech itself. On the other hand, uh, there are teams, teams I've worked with where they embrace that. The tech has become uh, an aid to some of the collaboration because it's invited quieter voices into the process. It's invited yeah. uh, kind of asynchronous forms of collaboration, not just having to be in the room together. I do think it really does depend. You'll know your team and, and how it is and how it likes to work and the quality of the relationships that will have a bearing on how you engage virtually with 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 collaboration you may have to work however however good you are as a team you may have to work a little bit harder on the relational bit of mm. working virtually but it needn't be a barrier to good collaboration and in fact there are all kinds of um, there's all kinds of platforms and aids technically out there that actually can make collaboration a much more exciting creative generative process so long as you recognize that the tech is an input and not an end in itself yeah, so I think that, that, you know, still to foreground the relationships and, and, and the quality of that dynamic, I think was, was, was where I would settle on that question. When organisations, not necessarily the King's Fund, are asking for teams to come back into work because it aids collaboration, what do you think they're really saying there? I think what they're really saying is we don't trust you. What we value in this organisation is, is is presence, presenteers, and, and, and uh, that's how we uh, know work is getting done, is that we can see you doing it. I think the collaboration thing is a bit of a bit of a straw man, really, for that argument. Fair enough. So are you saying there are groups that actually benefit from remote collaboration? Yeah, absolutely. In the same way that there are groups that, that thrive and do well face to face in a room together. You know, there are, there are folk who will, will find their voice and be able to contribute more readily uh, and more fully when you're inviting them to participate asynchronously, for example, or virtually through functions like the chat or in breakout conversations that you might use uh, using online or virtual working. So I think there's been some research shown that, you know, uh, virtual working really, really benefits uh, the introverts among us. Mm -hmm. uh, women have found their voice more frequently in some of the studies I've seen include and uh, other minoritized groups too. So if you want to break the sort of hegemony of the of the, the sort of shouty white male at the middle of a lot of these conversations, yeah. virtual working can also be a really um, valuable way of bringing difference and a diversity of perspectives into the collaborating process. Yeah, that's really interesting. You definitely want more voices heard when you're working in a, in a group together. Yeah, absolutely. My final question is, so what three things should people be thinking about when it comes to collaboration, you know, no matter where they are in the organisation and how can everybody play their part? Okay, so, so I said at the top that I think collaboration is a is a creative energy in the organization and there's a lot that works against it so my first take home is like be intentional about it it won't just happen so you've got to want to do it and you've got to mean to do it and you've got to do it within some intent yeah the second thing i would say is uh seek out difference bring different perspectives particularly marginalized or quieter voices into the work and into your work wherever you can there's no chance collaboration can happen where you've got groupthink or you've got a bunch of people who, who look and sound like me. We won't get anything new out of that. It will just, we'll just kind of 
being some sort of self-congratulatory um, uh, <laughs> huddle, and um, that can, that can feel really good, and it can feel very seductive. But actually, um, so second thing would be get get difference and diversity of perspectives and experience into your work and into your conversation wherever possible. And then my third one is just to experiment, be playful, have fun. I mean, play as a kind of as a kind of device for change. We we sort of let go of it when we stop being at a certain point. Um, yeah. But when I watch my daughter play, what she's doing is she's constantly mm. um, imagining scenarios and there aren't any limits on, on her imagination. So she's constantly piecing together new bits of the world which she's exploring and experiencing and fashioning them into some kind of uh, really wild kind of game. <laughs> but but that, that act, that bit of her brain she's engaging, that imaginative, playful bit, it's just it's often completely absent from the world of work and so even in small ways if you just experiment with how you lay your room out or how you what kind of materials you bring in to do an exercise or how you organize the meeting itself or the conversation itself there's loads you can do to just experiment around the edges with if we if we do this what might happen to the conversation we're about to have yeah. and so it doesn't have to be like a <laughs> Uh, a huge great thing it can be small little everyday experiments in in how you're going to approach getting some work done together and just bring some fun and lightness into that because that's where there's the opportunity for trust to be developed but it's also where um, that creative energy can emerge and start to kind of come together into something new and interesting. I think there's so much in that when you you know, like you say, you've been looking at your daughter and, and just seeing her absentmindedly playing. And along with that, she's probably problem solving. She's imagining. She's right, doing yeah. all sorts of thinking there, even though it looks quite innocent from an onlooker's perspective. And I think there's something around trying to channel that as an adult, which is quite hard. Yeah. If you've like you're an actual adult now, like how do you tap into that playful side so of you true. when you're so far removed from your, you know, your? It's so you, true, and everything. Every message you get socially is about taking yourself seriously. Take yourself really seriously. Yeah, yeah. You take your career seriously. Take your your professional identity as a serious. It's, it's, everything's very serious. And yeah. um, I'm I'm not saying there's not value to that because of course there is. You should take yourself seriously, but not too seriously that you can't engage that other creative bit of your brain along with others. I said it earlier, but I really believe this that that is what makes humans capable of such great acts of creation and, and change is that it's that side of their brain it's not it's not only the analytical problem solving serious bit of themselves we we need and we thrive on accessing that much more generative creative energy in us excellent it's, so, it feeds the so soul true. right it totally it feeds, feeds the soul, soul. So thanks so much for taking part, Simon, and also thanks to everyone listening. I hope you found it useful and insightful. This is just one of a series of in-house podcasts for the King's Fund, all about various aspects of digital workplace transformation. Bye for now.